Warning, the following podcast is a shit show, and the individuals you are about to meet are idiots. Their opinions, anecdotes, and advice contain zero nutritional value. This is the critical human condition and all of its strangeness. This is life, according to an idiot. Anyway, so MILF Manor, so we're talking about reality shows, and I wanted to, <laughs> I wanted to hit the record button because I have opinions on MILF Manor, okay. and I wanted it preserved. So MILF Manor is a new reality TV show, and I can't remember what network is doing it. I believe it's TLC. Okay, that makes sense. TLC has like the raunchiest ideas, but the idea is having a bunch of cougars come into a house, basically. Like they're all moms and they like want to find love. They want to date or whatever. So they like put them all in this house and they get a bunch of young men on the show and they're doing like dating competition stuff so that they can find someone they're attracted to. But the twist that they don't tell either group is that the young men are the sons of the MILFs. Yeah. So they basically, the moms have to watch their sons, like, try and fuck other MILFs. And it's like this weird incestuous... Yeah, it's very Oedipus Rex. It is very incestuous because they always ride the line between just uncomfortable, oh, my mom's watching me try to fuck a MILF, and also, like, sons doing fuckable things with their moms like mm -hmm. like i know one of the more recent episodes one of the challenges was called dirty laundry and there was a like a collection of all of the milfs in the in, in milf manor all of their underwear each son had to find which underwear they thought was their mom's underwear no yeah isn't that absolutely the grossest thing you've ever heard in your life i would just leave the show like why are these people doing this I would. I would commit like seppuku. I would die. Because how do you continue life the, after that? I Any job interview you have, your name traces back to Milf Manor. That's like the biggest red flag in the Like if I found out that anyone I was like wanting to date was on that show, it would be an instant no. Because mm -hmm. it's like, what kind of fucked up shit do you have going on? And like one of the other challenges was they had blindfolded the moms and the sons and the sons were shirtless and the moms had to go and feel up all of the men to figure out like who their son was or something <laughs> it's like what what kind stuff. of hellscape are we in I know. are we so out of like reality tv show ideas that this is what we're doing now <laughs> yeah it's it's also the the next logical step into the descent into tv hellscape madness you know, like mm -hmm. it is both startling and disturbing, but also understandable. Like I'm not, I'm not mm -hmm. as surprised by the premise of the show as I thought I should be, you know, I'm yeah. like, yeah, no, yeah, you know, and part of me is like, I'd like to watch that for the cringe value, you know, yeah, that'd be like a fun cringe watch. And for me, all reality TV is cringe. I agree. I love reality TV, certain shows, but I, the way that I react is I plug my ears, you know, like there are moments I think partially designed by the producers where things come to a head and there's a cringy interaction conflict and i cover my face i cover my ears my <laughs> girlfriend can just watch it no problem but i'm i'm writhing mm -hmm. oh, i just i leave the room i leave the room so much when we watch like we watch below deck have you ever watched that oh yeah it follows like a charter cruise mm -hmm. cruise ship team on luxury yacht vacations it's not that cringy it's not that taboo like other shows mm -hmm. but 
It's reality TV. It's humans interacting in front of a camera. And they all know they're on camera. Mm-hmm. And yet having to act like they aren't on camera or that they don't see the camera. People, when they're in that position, become so bizarre. Yeah. Two humans interacting, weird in general. Put a camera in there and everybody changes. Mm-hmm. More and more uncomfortable. Well, it's like, you know, when someone's trying to take like a candid photo of you, like if they're just taking photos of you, it's natural and it's fine. But as soon as you know a camera's there to take photos of you, you don't know how to move your body. <laughs> you don't know how to like exist. Yeah, you, you hold a smile too long. Right. <laughs> and you're like looking back and like trying to look inconspicuous. Yeah, right. Ugh. And like some people can do it really well, but like mm-hmm. most people can't. And it's right. like that factor that adds... Just like the necessary cringe that you need for reality TV. Because like you inherently know it's a bit disingenuous, but you like to pretend that it's not. You know, like you like to pretend these people are just this way. You get wrapped up in it and you go, you know, I really like this guy. And then you remember, oh, wait, he agreed to be on a reality TV show. This is not Mm -hmm. somebody that I would like in real life. And it's also all editing. Of course. We'll find ourselves getting angry at like a character or like this. Oh, how could this person be so horrible? And then you realize like, oh, wait. They're recording this person for like 24 hours and like we're just seeing 30 minutes of it. They, they mm-hmm. turn a day into 30 minutes. They absolutely control what we're seeing and like how we're seeing it. They use the musical cues. You know, I've seen certain shows where they'll, they'll reuse clips, like reaction shots, because mm-hmm. they're just trying to make us think something that didn't happen. Yeah. And it's kind of like wild too, because I think we all universally know that mm-hmm. like we know that fact but also like we just don't care we just want to hate someone and it's like yeah. i'm just choosing to believe that you suck because i just want to hate you for a minute you know? yeah it's drama it's like the best kind of drama mm-hmm. i just want like, some drama right now let's watch something shitty because you gotta remember these are people who like thrive on a reality tv show set yeah it's just so weird somebody who like needs the camera on them somebody who needs to stoke drama somebody who you know because it, it rewards that kind of behavior Right. Remember, ultimately, me and my girlfriend always talk about this whenever we're watching shows like that. We we remind ourselves, like, this is producer-driven. Like, the producer is likely giving people notes and also, like, Mm -hmm. manipulating situations to create these this conflict, you know? And also, Mm -hmm. they bring on people who they know are going to rock the boat. Right. Exactly. It's so interesting to me. We're all just playing the producer's game. Mm Mm-hmm. We're all just little puppets. And you know what? I keep coming back for more because it's just so juicy. And I love this, my scheduled hate time. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) Well, you know what else I love? Hmm. Mysteries of the world, which ties in perfectly with the segment that we have on this show called Science Corner. (gasps) Mystery Science Science Corner. Mystery science, or I explain things science-related. Science is cool, and today we are cool. So I came across a fun little snippet about rogue waves, and it made me want to talk about them, because that's usually how things work, right? Yeah. Anyways, (laughs) so we're all familiar with the Br- Br- oh my god Bermuda <laughs> yes I've heard of this Br- the Bermuda Triangle Bermuda Triangle yes it's constant fear of your younger years when you were a child you, when am I gonna encounter the Bermuda Triangle yeah I always thought that uh, most likely never but I'm I'm here to explain it away for you 
Anyway, so the big fear of Bermuda Triangle, right, was ships disappearing mm -hmm. and no one could ever figure out what was happening to these ships. And, you know, there's a lot of speculation that there was something crazy with this area. Yeah. But something that scientists have found out that might be related to the Bermuda Triangle cause of ships disappearing is something called a rogue wave. A rogue wave is a wave that is four to five times higher than the average height of the waves around it with no logical explanation. So an explanation like a tsunami or like an earthquake, something along those lines. Mm -hmm. So it's just like, imagine you're along the ocean, right? You're on a ship and then all of a sudden you have something that's like, you know, five times higher. It's just fucking terrifying. I've heard, I've heard of these and they do sound absolutely terrifying. Yeah, they're scary. And it's even scarier because scientists thought this was like a one in 10,000 year event. So they built ships, they built sea vessels, not accommodating for these events because they thought they were so rare. So like ships weren't able to handle these like really out of place, like waves that were much higher than other ones that they like were able to theorize should be the maximum height for that area. So the thing that kind of sparked this knowledge was a rogue wave hitting a 1995 oil platform that was 84 feet tall. And the average wave heights of all the other waves around it were 34 feet. So Whoa. insanely high. So this was the first one that they were able to like actually record and see. And so it sent them on a fucking little frenzy. All the little scientists were like, holy shit. So they went out on this like three week ocean expedition and they're like, we got to we got to find this. We got to see what's going on. We're going to hurt that wave. <laughs> we're going to fucking punch it. They have a really big knife. <laughs> So what they found within three weeks was 10 plus 98 feet high waves. So happens way more than they anticipated, right? Because they thought it was one every 10,000 years. And they were like consistent. How long were they out there to find that many? Three weeks. So in three weeks, they found over 10 of those waves? Yes. That's terrifying, dude. That's crazy. And like the coast of Scotland got like quite a few too. There were 98 feet waves and the theoretical max for the area was 38 feet. First of all, 38 feet waves. That's so huge. And then like a 98 foot wave. That's insane. Right. Nine things that are 100 feet tall from measuringstuff.com. Hell yeah. That's my kind of website. <laughs> a blue whale, two shipping containers, two megalodongs. 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 <laughs> hey. <laughs> That's the uh, size of a 10-story building or a Boeing 737 aircraft. That's insane. That's very large. Two shipping containers tall. Is that a shipping container like on its long end? Yeah, I think that's a long end because it's a 10-story foot building. Okay. I was going to say, if it was the height of a shipping container, that's not too, that's not too tall. It's like, yeah, no, that's like... It's like two cars just, on top of each other. <laughs> it's just me. Yeah. So models estimate, like newer models estimate that there are over 10 rogue waves that exist at any point in the world at all times. Okay. So like right now there are 10 rogue waves just fucking chilling out. And when these rogue waves hit a coast, it's called a sneaker wave, which I thought was fun. <laughs> Snuck up on us. I would love to see like one hit the shore. That'd be badass. So there was one that hit ashore and it was during like a surfing competition. And I can't remember what year it was, but 12 people got injured because it just like completely like swamps the whole area, you know, and there's like so much force behind it. 
And scientists looked at that and were like, oh, what a sneaker. I'm going to see if I can find footage of a rogue wave. It's terrifying. So there's no like direct cause known for why we get these rogue waves because much of the ocean is still unknown. I mean, it's studied, but it's not studied the way it deserves. You know what I mean? Yeah. So some of the theories are something called constructive interference. There's like a ton of theories, but they're thinking it's more of a collection of a lot of these different theories that contribute to it. One of the big ones is constructive interference. And with wave theories, um, if you have... I'm talking about like light waves, like or sound frequencies. Like if you think about that, mm -hmm. if you have one wave that like clashes with another one, there are like two major ideas of like what would happen. Either they would conflict with each other and both waves would disappear or they would merge into one and create a bigger wave. Yeah. So that's like one idea. So if you think of like double bouncing on a trampoline. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, sometimes sometimes it, it fucks you both up and then sometimes you launch off. Yeah, exactly. And then the other one is called nonlinear wave interaction. So that's the idea that waves don't exist in a linear pattern and that they can transfer energy between them. So that accounts for like random spikes in the wave pattern because it doesn't function in like a consistent way all the time. The energy distributes, and if they all happen to distribute to one point at one time, then you get the weird random rogue wave. And something that they say about rogue waves is that they seem to disappear as quickly as they appear, so it's just kind of like a flash moment. Yeah. But that's all I got. That's scary though, man. Fun little ocean patterns, but it's fucking terrifying. Can you imagine? The like, ocean is so scary. I can't get over how scary the ocean is. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like scary now, but can you imagine just being a fucking little peasant boy back in the day and you're like on some wooden boat and this thing that people didn't know was a thing just like hit you and it was 10 stories high? Yeah. Or like being a sailor and you see this shit all the fucking time and you're telling people and they're like, science disagrees with you, you know? Right. That's a weird fable. But I think it's, it's even scarier too. I always think that's like you said on an old wooden ship way back in the day. Back before, like, you had the comfort of knowing science, mm -hmm. even someone like me who, like, does not have a good grasp on most scientific ideas, I at least know, like, okay, science is on our side. We are approaching all of this through a scientific lens. The ship is built a certain way. We are on a certain trajectory to keep us safe, to get there efficiently. We know what to do. But back in the day when, like, Anything you didn't understand was sort of like mythical or like just up to God. Mm -hmm. Not only are you seeing, for example, this rogue wave, you think it's like God, mm -hmm. this cosmic force that's like, oh, I'm going to fucking die. There was nothing we could do about it, you know? Mm -hmm. And in that case, the sea is just full of unknown. Still is. But I mean, back then, especially like you didn't fucking really know what a squid was. You didn't know what a whale was. <laughs> you know how like cryptids are just misidentified animals most of the time? Mm -hmm. You see something out in the sea and you go, that's a fucking mermaid, dude. Right. And like you just live with that thinking, like knowing, dude, I just saw a fucking giant kraken or like a monster. Yeah. But in reality, it was, it was explainable. Maybe you didn't see anything. Maybe you just saw like a weird fucking wave or maybe you saw a seal or maybe you saw uh, the tail of a whale. But you thought monsters are out there and I just saw one. Well, I mean, to be fair, in the ocean, monsters are out there because all of those little fish guys look crazy. They look whack. They are horrifying. 
Yeah, because they live under like a million pounds of pressure, and so they're built like aliens. Yeah. They have like beaks. Ugh. Nothing in the ocean needs a fucking beak. And I'm looking at you, squids. What are, what are you doing over squids there? Squids are fucking terrifying, dude. Giant squids, yeah, especially. Disgusting. We only like just recently confirmed that colossal squids were a thing. Mm hmm. Like, I want to say within the last century, we just found that out. I think so. I mean, that right? sounds great to me. In terms of like photo evidence? Mm hmm. Okay, well, the first photographs of a live giant squid in its natural habitat were taken on September 30th, 2004. Wow. Dude, there's so much shit we don't know about in the ocean. Yeah. In 2004? That's crazy. Yeah, we have better maps of the surface of Mars and the moon than we do at the bottom of the ocean. I hate that. There could be something down there just mutating. What if the aliens are just in the ocean? Great place to hide something. Mm -hmm. Whether you're an alien or a government, like, make a fucking undersea lab. Maybe that's why the ocean has been so unexplained. The government or whoever is doing weird shit in there and they don't want us to find it. So they're just like, hey, maybe don't. Let's, uh, why don't we look at the sky? It's all a diversion, people. It could be a full like Bioshock little universe down there. Yeah, a little rapture. I believe it. But in terms of the pressure thing, one thing I found out that was interesting, you know blobfishes? Yeah. They're kind of like internet famous for looking like little gross melting old men. Yeah. <laughs> they don't actually look like that. They look like that because when fishermen pull them up, they raise them up too quickly. They can't adjust to the pressure, so they fall apart. <gasps> Whoa. If you look up a picture of an actual blobfish, they have a lot more structure to them. Oh. They look like regular fat fish. Yeah. That makes me feel kind of bad. We're basically crushing their skulls. Yeah. We're giving fish the bends. <laughs> Rest in peace, blobfishes. Sorry, blobfishes. I thought you were beautiful all along. But yeah, super spooky. And um, I want to talk about some spooky stuff on the internet with this installment of Only on the Interwebs. Only on the Interwebs. Okay, I have just a few tweets that I found on this thread. I, I guess the the tweets were prompted by a, a discussion question regarding kids who see ghosts. Which I guess is is a it's kind of a thing. It's kind of like a an old wives' tale that kids can be clairvoyant because they haven't grown up yet. Like there's this yeah, weird... they have like a connection to the other side or something. Right. And it's like oh, once you become an adult, you lose a bunch of magic, which is super stupid sounding. But well, hold on, well, hold on a second. No, it's not. <laughs> it makes total sense if you think about it. Well, no, it makes total sense if you don't think about it. <laughs> I think it's creepier because kids. There's an innocence to children, and like kids are. We like to think they don't lie as much as adults do, mm -hmm. or there's really no profit to lying for them. And a lot of times it's also like when kids say things that they wouldn't have any otherwise known, it's like, well, how would they even come up with that? That's what makes it creepy yeah. like when a kid sees a ghost or sees something that doesn't make any sense. So here's some clairvoyant kids tweets. It's got a handful. I'll read them off. This one says, I once had a babysitter refuse to ever come to my house again after she heard my then three-year-old chatting with... Quote, the man who lives in the attic. Oh. Years later, same house, an Uber driver picks me up and says he used to live in our house. Then he asks me, does that ghost still live there? <gasps> no. Another one. When my son was around four or five, he said, do you remember back when I was big and you were little and we used to eat lunch by the river? He's named after my grandfather who used to take me to the river for picnics. Aww. Ugh. That's kind of gross, but it's kind of sweet. Yeah, it's kind of sad. Can you imagine your son being your reincarnated grandpa? That's kind of fucked up. Your kid being like, I fucked your grandma. 
Yeah, I made you. <laughs> I technically made you. <laughs> On the way home from daycare, my three-year-old got sad and said she had a bad day. Why, I asked. Because I used to be a grandma, but then I died. Then the doctor took the dirt out of my mouth, and now I'm Josie. That started a year of her telling us about her life as a South American grandma. What the fuck? Yeah, like, how would you... How do you I love how, like, primitive sounding that is. Then the doctor took the dirt out of my mouth, and now I'm Josie. Yeah. That's the shit I love when when kids, like, tell these stories. Because it's like, they use wording that's so... They definitely just are trying to understand a really weird image in their head. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine, like, so we're assuming that this is, like, an accurate retelling of, like, what happens. Oh, sure, yeah. Then that means, like, you're dead, you're buried, whatever. And then in the afterlife, whatever, something sees you, takes you in your form that you are, which is buried, and then removes all of the dirt. It unburies you. Yeah, unburies you so that you can be reincarnated as something else. Yeah. But you have to go through that process. Like, that's horrifying. I right. I hate that. <laughs> this tweet says, My daughter would stand up in her crib and wave and say, Hi, Seesaw, on a regular basis. One day she saw an old photo of my recently passed grandfather as a young man. She got really excited and yelled, Seesaw. His name was Cecil. This one comes with a photo, which obviously I can't show. I can show you this little photo, right? Okay. And it says, at age five, my son drew a portrait of our family of four with two tiny upside down people. Oh. The one right there and the one right there. Yeah. A year later, I gave birth to twins. <gasps> Isn't that crazy? And in this Ew. photo, it's just, Ugh. it's four, you know, poorly drawn, two parents and two kids. And then just two upside down little people with their hands spread out. Like two little, it looks like two little upside down birds. Mm-hmm. And one's right next to the mother and one's right next to the father. But yeah, that's, that's, that's all I had from, from those. That's the only on the interwebs. I don't know how you can look me in the eyes and tell me that kids aren't magical. Kids are magical. They got magic in them. Their souls are so new and so fresh that they're still partially connected to the other side. And so they can access the Akashic records. Oh. And then as we become adults... We forget and we lose the connection. Yeah. But listen, that's why I'm not having children. So with that, I, I guess let's just get into the main segment, yeah? Yeah. Just get this get this out of the way. So what's uglier than a child? Nothing, but a close second is aliens. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess that's true. What's as horribly traumatic and life-altering as raising a child? Being abducted by aliens. Uh, yeah. Anyway, so back on track, <laughs> we're going to be talking about <laughs> such a shit show. We're going to be talking about the abduction of Betty and Barney Hill, which is a a, a very prolific alien abduction encounter. Mm-hmm. And it's part of the canon of American UFO abduction folklore. We talked about it briefly on like a prior episode, but this is going to be like a deep dive, like a deep, deep dive. So if you're like, hey, you guys talked about this already. Yeah, but that was just scratching the surface. That was a pebble on the top of a mountain. We're going to be talking about at least a third of the mountain now. A third of the mountain. At least, yeah. We just scratched the surface. We're going to scratch deep in the ass of the story. If we're sticking a finger in, we're at like the fingernail. Well, we were. Now we're going to go like the second knuckle. Yeah. (laughs) You know, we're going deep. It's become a lifestyle change. Mm Mm-hmm. It's becoming like you need it now. It's becoming like, okay, I'm going to do this again later as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's not going to be the same. 
Okay, so <laughs> let's jump in to <laughs> alien abductions. Sharing their curiosity to know the unknown, their tension, their readiness for inconceivable adventures. Is it human or inhuman? Earthly or unearthly? September 19, 1961. Saw a strange light in the sky, started following us. We were taken on board. Watch the skies. Majority of Americans believe that UFOs are real and come from space. Unbelievable. Fantastic. But I tell you, it could happen. The first widely publicized report of alien abduction occurred on the night of September 19th, 1961. Where were you in 1961, Mo? Dead. <laughs> and my soul is still being shuffled around in the universe. I believe you were still in your grandfather's ball sack, I think, at that point. Yeah. Was your father born yet in 1961? No. Yes. He'd be... Yeah, he was. No. Uh, no. I don't know. I have this really bad thing where I could not remember the year my parents were born. I can't either. Yeah, but like, isn't that fine? I think it's fine, right? I think that's okay. <laughs> so this started around 10.30 p.m. as a married couple, Betty and Barney Hill, were on the long drive back from an impromptu honeymoon in Niagara Falls to their home in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. So just some background on this couple, because I think they're pretty interesting. The two had met in 1956 through mutual friends, and over time, their friendship developed into something more. After separating from his wife, homewrecker Betty, <laughs> Barney married Betty in May 1960. Betty had been living in New Hampshire with her three children from a previous marriage, and she worked as a social worker for the state. Barney was from Pennsylvania, where he worked for the U.S. Post Office at the Philadelphia branch, later transferring to Boston to be closer to Betty. Despite the over 100-mile commute, this dude drove 100 miles to see her, like each day. Each day? Isn't that fucking insane? Wow. That's like lesbian. Yeah. They love each other as much as a lesbian couple would. Eventually, Betty found work in Pennsylvania while finishing her degree, which allowed the two to see each other comfortably and spend more time together. When Betty finished her degree, they relocated to Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and their marriage was notable, by the way, at least by 1960s standards, due to the fact that Betty was white and Barney was black. Oh, okay. But it, it is really impressive. And you'll see throughout this story that after they have this experience, Betty is, you'll see some, I hate to sound like a flaming liberal, you'll see some privilege in their two responses because mm. you'll see Betty is very excited by the fact that like they had this insane encounter, but Barney is very much like, don't draw attention to us. Mm -hmm. I don't want to talk about it. Barney, you can tell is very traumatized from probably growing up in a very bad time to grow up as a black man in America. Yeah. I mean, is there a good time? No, but I mean, he was around during Jim Crow laws when he was growing up. You know what I mean? In a worse time. Yeah. Arguably, it was getting better, but still horrible. You'll see him. He's a man that's kind of racked with anxiety. Obviously, he has some very traumatic issues that are that causes anxiety and his self-doubting. Whereas Betty mm -hmm. is like, oh my God, we need to talk about this. I can't believe it. Barney knows how to lay low and Betty doesn't. Mm -hmm. I think it's interesting to see that contrast between the two. So getting back to the honeymoon. The couple's honeymoon trip was planned nearly a year after their marriage as an effort to reconnect. Barney was still working in Boston, and the long commute back and forth from there to Portsmouth had caused some strain, leaving Barney with an unnatural sleep schedule and a stomach ulcer to boot. Ugh. But after a romantic Canadian excursion, Betty and Barney Hill, joined by their beloved dog, a dachshund named Delcy, drove home to New Hampshire 
but not before taking an unexpected detour into a world-shattering nightmare. Uh-oh. Their drive back had been generally uneventful. They had originally planned to rent a hotel in Montreal that day, but after news of an approaching storm the following day, they decided to drive through the night to get a head start on Mother Nature. After stopping for a bite to eat at a diner in Colebrook, New Hampshire, the Hills got back on the road at around 10 p.m. Driving south of Lancaster, the couple noticed a strange light in the clear night sky. They thought it was a shooting star until the streak of light made an abrupt turn upward. They continued on Route 3, keeping a steady pace of 30 miles an hour to safely navigate the winding roads that snake through the White Mountains, all the while watching the same odd light racing above them. They pulled off several times to better observe it. On their first stop, Barney took their dog Delcy for a quick walk. He also took their 32mm pistol, which they had kept in the trunk, fearing he may run into a wild animal or God knows what. Meanwhile, Betty retrieved a pair of binoculars from the car and stayed by the vehicle, hoping to get a clearer view of the mystery light. Betty followed the light as it flew against the moon. She caught its silhouette, a large cigar-shaped object, which I mean, I'm sure you know too, like cigar-shaped UFO comes up all the time in these stories. Yes. When Barney returned, he handed Delcy's leash off to Betty and took a turn with the binoculars. After a moment, he noticed several backlit windows in the flying object, but he noted they were nothing like windows on a plane. This was something different. It had no wings. <gasps> with the hour growing late, the hills got back on the road. So driving along, they noticed that the road had grown completely desolate. Miles and miles stretched on without a single car passing them on their way. This, I think, understandably gave Barney the heebie-jeebies. You know, being alone on the road that late is scary, I think. I always get freaked out whenever I'm on a yeah. road trip at night and there's like nobody for miles and miles. <laughs> I'm like, well, fuck. Yeah, no. It's just sort of a different, darker, colder emptiness when you're on an empty road. What is the scarier thought to you? Being on the road alone driving at night or driving alone at night and there's only one other car? Is it behind me or in front of me? Behind you seemingly going the exact same way that you're going every single turn it depends how long i mean if i'm on the interstate i get it because it's like there's only one way to go mm -hmm. but if i make like several exits and several turns and it's like damn this guy's been following me for like three hours and it's dark my mind will definitely wander mm -hmm. otherwise I'm, I'm okay with it i like it i prefer it than being alone being alone i just all i can think of is like what are my headlights gonna see oh yeah that's scary also too like if i break down there's no one driving by you know, I'm mm -hmm. just alone. I'm just fucked. If I can't, you probably don't have a cell signal. Yeah. So you break down and nobody drives by. You can't get a hold of anybody. You're sleeping in your car that night. Right. Does that freak you out? I think it freaks me out more to have someone behind me. I've like freaked myself out about that a few times before. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I get real freaked out about it. I had this one, never forgot this. I was driving home from up north. So it's, it's up north aesthetic. So it's kind of like rural mm -hmm. and desolate. And there was this old Camaro, but it was all beaten up. It was like a black Camaro, a 1970s car, all beaten up. Both headlights were out. It was following me when it was like, you know, late afternoon into like dusk. And it kept on following me for like 50 miles, just following me. And it started to get dark and its headlights never came on. Mm. And eventually I'm driving in the dark and I just see the shadow of the car behind me. It just creeped me out because I'm like, Ugh. he's following me and I can't see him, but he can see me. Mm -hmm. Also, he was like riding my ass too. Oh. I turned off. I never saw him again. But That's like, so annoying. Yeah. Yeah. Growing up outside of Flint, you're told not to stop your car. <laughs> yeah. If it's like late at night, even if it's a red light, like you just drive through it because people are just waiting around all the time or like people will follow you. 
my parents told me not to get gas or anything late at night because people will see that you're like a young person by yourself and then they'll like follow you. So I'm just like hyper hyper weird, scared. <laughs> Survival mentality. Yeah, because you did you did kind of grow up in a weird spot where like your town was kind of rural, but it was right next to like urban, mm-hmm. you know, outside of Flint. So like it, it gets industrial, rural. Because mm-hmm. I remember driving out to your place back in the day and like you start driving past factories and like a bunch of strip clubs. Yeah. You know, I remember the Odyssey. Dort Highway. <laughs> if you go down Dort Highway, there's like 10. Yeah. 10 directly next door. Gentlemen clubs. Like literally next door to each other. It's so weird. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways. <laughs> but yeah, so back to their, their trip. So Barney's creeped out. There's nobody on the road. The light, however, that strange light in the sky persisted. And Barney could swear it was following them. As they drove on, the craft would fly out of sight, returning sometime later over the distant mountains, and its bright lights would cast upon the rugged peaks and cliff faces. They would see the lights of this craft shining on the mountains. Mm -hmm. So in the text that I read, by the way, I should cite my source, it's The Interrupted Journey by John G. Fuller. That was the book that I read for this. It's kind of derivative. I think it's kind of comes off more as like a transcript. Hmm. Okay. But again, super interesting. It gives you a lot of detail. So he sees this craft come in and out of sight. He swears that it's like a military craft, and he thinks it's trying to prank him. Huh. Because Barney has a background in the military, Hmm. and he thinks they're playing a joke on civilians. But also, Barney is somebody who constantly is anxious and thinks that someone's trying to get him. Well, that is a thing that people in the military would do. Like at that time, they would like pull pranks on civilians, especially the Air Force. So Barney's thinking this the whole time. He's getting nervous. A few miles on, Barney eventually stopped the car as the craft had gotten alarmingly close to him. It was hovering about roughly 100 feet above them, centered over the road. Mm-hmm. At this point, he slows down the car, stops the car in the middle of the street. They watched the cigar-shaped craft, which Barney later likened to a big pancake with lights, as mm-hmm. it lowered. Among the row of bright lights along its sides, the craft had two flashing red lights on either end that kind of like projected out of the sides. Like a school bus has like that sign that comes out of it. Yeah. Came out of the sides, these two flashing red lights, almost like hazards. Ooh, okay. For whatever reason, Barney stepped out of the car. And when he did, the strange craft moved swiftly and silently to an open field on the left-hand side of the road. This whole part, Barney describes being like not really in control of his body. Huh. Almost kind of in like a half trance. Because again, Barney's Mm -hmm. a very cautious, nervous dude. And this is kind of out of character for him, but he just out of the car. It was then that Barney admitted to himself that this was no normal aircraft, no military helicopter, no trick of the eye. This was one of those flying saucers he had read about in newspapers and seen in cheap matinee theaters. Parked there in the clearing, hovering in unnerving silence, the craft had a sentient feeling to it, like it was interacting with Barney. The craft positioned facing away from the car, its brilliant lights illuminating the line of trees beyond it. It wasn't until Barney took a nervous step forward binoculars and pistol in hand that the craft rotated in a seamless turn blinding lights pointing at the man barney soon saw the lights were definitely windows and within the frames stood the silhouettes of what looked like people there were about eight maybe even ten looking out at him with his binoculars barney made out some faces one he later described as a red-headed irishman Another, the one he'd go on to interpret as the leader of the group, he said reminded him of a Nazi officer in appearance. But this was mainly due to his unique uniform. The quote-unquote leader would leave the greatest impression on Barney with his large, slanted eyes that made him look evil. 
He wore a black military officer's hat and a shiny black jacket with a scarf draped over it. Barney soon heard a voice, seemingly coming from nowhere, echoing in his head like a hallucination. But he instinctively knew, or rather felt, that it was coming from the leader. And the voice said, quote, Stay there and keep looking. Just keep looking and stay there. Ugh, so fucking creepy. Barney was frozen, by fear or something else, and stood like a statue with the binoculars to his face. Inside, he was burning with sincere panic. Every muscle tensed and twitching, pushing to run, but Barney's bones wouldn't budge. His mind reaching peak hysteria, Barney at last broke into a wild sprint towards the car. He tossed Betty the binoculars and threw the car into first gear, and their 1957 Chevy Bel Air went screaming down the road in the opposite direction of the craft. Speeding breathlessly into the dead New Hampshire night, Barney asked an equally terrified Betty to look for the craft, muttering on and on about how he was sure they were going to be caught or captured. Rolling down the passenger window and peering out into the black, Betty saw no sign of the craft. But oddly enough, she also saw no sign of the stars, which previously had dotted the clear night sky. Huh. There was only black. That's when Barney cried out that he was positive the craft had just flown above them. So this image of perhaps the craft is covering the night sky, it's above them. Mm-hmm. That's horrifying. Yeah. Just then, an odd electronic beeping was heard in irregular rhythm shaking the car with each beat mm. coming from the back of the car and oh hold on okay i just had i just had a brain moment but it like reminds me i think that's fucking called a thought i had a thought so what i was envisioning when you said that was like when you're driving and you have someone who like added bass speakers to their car or something yeah that like just like shaking everything right so they're hearing this beeping. There's a rhythm to it, but it's irregular and it's strange and it kind of lulls them a little bit. Mm -hmm. That's when it all began to slip away. A strange tingling ran through both of their bodies and brought on a haze of drowsiness. According to Betty and Barney Hill, that was when they must have blacked out. Mm -hmm. Just with a snap of a finger, they were suddenly awoken by another set of beeping. When the couple came to, they were still in the car, still driving. Both of them quiet and all around numb as they sat in a sort of mental twilight, like sleepwalking but different. They found themselves roughly 35 miles south of where they had made contact with the UFO. It was when they passed a sign reading Concord, 17 miles, that they both recall entering a fully sober consciousness. They weren't initially startled. Barney had recalled feeling no concern for the 30 plus miles he had no memory driving. As they collected themselves, the two agreed not to tell anyone about what just happened as even they struggled to believe it. They reached home in the early morning. Barney checked his watch to see it was just past 5 a.m. Barney remarked that they were home later than expected, much later. Betty cared for the dog while Barney unloaded the car. While clearing the vehicle, he noticed the leather strap on the binoculars was cleanly torn in half. Hmm. Both described having a sick, clammy feeling that morning, and Barney complained that an area on his lower abdomen was bothering him. Hmm. Later that morning... The couple sat down to try and account for the hours of missing time between fleeing the aircraft and waking up near Concord. Betty recalled some fractured memories, a highway marker, a peculiar wrong turn, then a roadblock where they were stopped by odd-looking men and a bright orange moon sitting on the road in front of them. Barney, too, recalled the image of a bizarre-shaped moon object in the road and recalled saying in response, Oh no, not again when seeing a roadblock. Oh, but that was it. It's horrifying. So in The Interrupted Journey, which covered the Hill story, he quotes Barney as saying, 
When we arrived at our house and Betty got out and took the dog on her leash to walk her around the yard, I got out of the car and began taking things out. Betty said she wanted me to throw the food from the cooler out and to keep the rest of the things from the car out of the house. I could hardly wait until I was able to get everything from the car to the back porch so that I could go into the bathroom, where I took a mirror and began looking over my body. I didn't know why at the time, but I felt unclean, Mm. with a grime different from what usually accumulates on a trip. Somewhat clammy, Betty and I both went to the window, and then I opened the back door and we both looked skyward. And I went into the bedroom and I looked around. I can't describe it. It was a presence. Not that the presence was there with us, but something very puzzling had happened. Unquote. After some restful sleep, the two handled some further unpacking. Betty made a point of taking the dress she had worn during the traumatic drive and hiding it in the back of her closet. She also noticed some rips in the dress Hmm. that she couldn't account for. Oddly enough, she would never wear that dress again. Wow. Barney also examined his dirty clothes, noticing that his best shoes, which he wore on the drive, had serious scuff marks on the tops of them. Barney wondered if they were caused by him being dragged along the ground by someone. Mm. That would be the only reasonable way one could scuff the tops of their shoes. Yeah. More strange were the numerous burrs caught on the cuffs of his pants and socks. The burrs gave way to a new vague memory of him walking across the field near the strange aircraft. And also it's it's weird. For some reason in this book and like every other source I could find, everyone keeps on making a note of like how clean Barney was. <laughs> but he was known as a very clean and well-dressed man. And so dirtying his clothes or scuffing his shoes were things that bothered him to no end. And he was very careful to avoid. Around the same time that day, Barney noticed an emerging pain on the back of his neck. Betty grew frustrated with Barney as he avoided any discussion about their experience. Mm -hmm. As Betty mentioned in the book, The Interrupted Journey, Barney had a nervous nature that led him to ignore and dismiss things that scared or confused him. Well, yeah. And also like this was like traumatizing. Yeah. But there are two different kinds of people. There's people who when they experience a traumatic event, they want to talk about it. Mm-hmm. And there's people who like, I don't want to talk about this. I'm not ready right now. Mm-hmm. Like, I think completely way less traumatic than this. But when I told you that story about how me and my girlfriend rented that Airbnb and we heard that yeah. that fucking voice, the disembodied voice that we were, we were positive was a ghost. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to talk about it. I was like, how insane was that? And like her response was, I don't want to think about it right now. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about it later. Yeah. And on his denial of the encounter, author John G. Fuller wrote, quote, Betty thought, That's the way Barney is. If something frightens him or he doesn't like it, he just says to himself that it never happened. Barney, to a degree, will confess to this. Hmm. Needing the catharsis of unpacking their strange encounter, Betty reached out to someone she knew would want to talk and most importantly listen. It was her sister, Janet Miller. Betty knew her sister wouldn't dismiss or judge her because Janet had her own encounter when she and her family saw a UFO in the sky back in 1957. Betty had always believed Janet's story, having great confidence in her sister's integrity and capacity for accurate observation. Janet affirmed Betty's story, of course, and agreed with Betty's concern that their clothes and belongings inside the car at the time of the encounter might have been affected by radiation. Okay. That's why she asked Bonnie to bring everything to the back porch, not inside the house. Yeah. Because back then, like, nuclear power and radiation was, like, associated with weird, strange technology. Yeah, and, like, mutations and stuff like that. Right. So that's why she insisted that Barney bring everything to the back porch and throw out the food. Janet would go on to consult with a neighbor who happened to be a physicist. And the neighbor recommended Betty use a standard compass to test for radiation, claiming that if the compass was held up to the car, that any residual radiation would disturb the compass needle. Okay. So Betty took a compass and brought it out to the car, pressing it against the vehicle, and there was no discernible movement from the needle. 
But while running the compass along the back of the car, she noticed something unusual. Quote, a dozen or more shiny circles scattered on the surface of the trunk, each perfectly circular and about the size of a silver dollar. They were highly polished in contrast to the dimmer surface of the rest of the trunk and the car, as if the paint had been buffed through a circular stencil. Weird. The gears in Betty's mind began turning, and one of the last clear memories before she and Barney passed out was that electronic beeping. She remembered the sound, rhythmic but distant, sounding as if it was coming from behind her and behind their seats, possibly originating from the trunk. Ever curious, Betty placed the compass on one of the circular spots, and the needle began spinning erratically. When she lifted the compass or placed it on an unaffected part of the trunk, the needle stopped, only to twirl wildly again when placed atop another one of the circular marks. This discovery excited Betty, but Barney didn't quite share her enthusiasm, <laughs> instead dismissing the whole thing and insisting that Betty not make a fuss. Mm-hmm. Following the advice of her sister, Betty reached out to a nearby Pease Air Force Base and spoke to an air officer who took interest in her story, even connecting her to another agent who collected every detail they could from Betty and Barney. A report on the Hills Encounters was actually eventually submitted to Project Blue Book, mm-hmm. and you can read that in declassified Blue Book files. About 10 days following the encounter, the nightmare started. For nights on end, Betty described experiencing recurring nightmares that were so vivid and real they haunted her long after waking. And this will also come into play later. But here's a rough breakdown of her nightmares. They were the same every time, but very vague in detail. She was encouraged to write it down on a typewriter, um, and so she started taking notes on it. Mm -hmm. In this dream, her and Barney drove up to a roadblock on a dark and remote road. Then a group of men, all dressed alike, approached their car. Upon reaching the car, Betty would black out. The dream would pick up with her coming to as she was forced by two small men to walk through a forest. Mm -hmm. The men were like five feet tall, and they had matching blue uniforms with caps similar to the ones worn by military cadets. They appeared mostly human with black hair, dark eyes, bluish lips, and gray skin. The men walked Betty and Barney up a ramp that led into a metallic disc-shaped vehicle. Once aboard, the couple was separated, and Betty was taken to an exam room. Betty met a calm-mannered man who resembled the previous Grey, who she would refer to as the Examiner. I'm just, like, imagining... My mind's on Lord of the Rings right now, but yeah. do you remember in the second movie, Gondor, when they all go and there's that king that's, like, all decrepit and gross, and there's the... I can't think of what it's called, but it's, like, snake tongue or something like that. Worm tongue. Yeah. That's what I'm imagining these, like, Grey aliens look like. Mm-hmm. Like, greasy almost wet looking black hair, super pale. They look gray and like slimy. Weird dudes. Gross. (laughs) The examiner had a pleasant aura that made Betty calm. He spoke in broken English and informed her that he would conduct an exam to study the difference between humans and the occupants of the strange craft. He sat Betty on a chair and shone a bright light on her. He cut off a lock of her hair, examined her eyes, ears, mouth, teeth, throat, and hands. In the room, there was another man present, this one dressed like a military officer. Hmm. Betty had interpreted this man to be the leader of the others, similar to Barney's experience. Yeah. The examiner then left the room, and Betty was alone with the leader. The leader made passive conversation with Betty and spoke in perfect English, unlike the examiner's unnatural and unplaceable accent. Hmm. Betty asked where he was from and was shown a star map featuring an unfamiliar constellation. It was a three-dimensional map like a hologram with various dots and lines representing stars. The dream would end with Betty and Barney being escorted back to their car and told to forget about the abduction, and then Betty would watch the aircraft take off. 
and the finer details of this dream would resurface later on when Betty and Barney took place in experimental hypnotherapy. Hmm. So, some other revelations that happened following all this. In the weeks and months following the incident, Betty leaned into the mystery of their experience while Barney, predictably, tried his best to push it out of his mind. Betty began reading whatever UFO-related literature she could get her hands on, which introduced her to a cast of prolific UFO authors and investigators. She eventually wrote to NICAP, which is the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomenon. And the group would later send out an investigator, Walter Webb, to interview the Hills and file a report. Walter Webb was especially interested in their case because in 1960 alone, NICAP had recorded seven plausible UFO sightings in New Hampshire, six of which occurred in the White Mountains area where the Hills had, they, had their encounter. Wow, okay. Two of those sightings were of alleged cigar-shaped aircraft. In Webb's extensive report on the Hills case, he emphasized the apparent trustworthy quality of the Hills, citing their strong character and competence. Mm -hmm. Webb's report drew the attention of even more investigators. And in November of 1961, two IBM employees, senior engineers Robert Homan and C.D. Jackson, wrote to the Hills and interviewed them later that month. Homan and Jackson's business-like attitude and professionalism appealed to Barney, who was obsessed with avoiding publicity and attracting quack flying saucer investigators. <laughs> but at the time, their overly specific and bizarre questions puzzled him. Questions about distances from the sighting locations and if there were any sources of nitrates in the car. Huh. One of the questions that struck a chord with Barney and Betty was, why did you take the trip? The couple admitted that the impromptu honeymoon was in an unusually spontaneous decision. Hmm. So this is a quote from Barney. Number one, there was no preparation for the trip. I had gone to Boston that night and had worked and was returning to Portsmouth that day. I decided during work, well, I think I would like to go to Niagara Falls and then return via Montreal. Betty had the week off anyway, and I was able to call in and get an extension of the weekend for several days. So we packed our car that night. Hmm. And this is Betty's take on it. Quote, this is how impulsive it was. The only money we had was in our pockets. Saturday, the banks were closed, so we couldn't even cash a check. I think the amount between the two of us was less than $70, unquote. So the questions of nitrates came up, and Betty mentioned that there may have been a bag of fertilizer in the trunk. Nitrates are present in fertilizers and explosives. Just a side note. Mm -hmm. So Betty enjoyed gardening, and there were potted plants all over their house. And these men from IBM, the men studied each houseplant, closely expecting them and asking them about the fertilizer she used. But the greatest question posed that day was what took the Hills so long to get home? Had the Hills never encountered the craft, they would have returned home two hours earlier than they had. And they apparently had never stopped driving. Mm -hmm. This conundrum over the missing time bothered Barney the most. Sometime after that interview, Barney and Betty revisited the site of the encounter on several occasions. They did this on the recommendation of Homan and Jackson, who theorized that it may help jog their memory and recall things they had forgotten. These visits to the encounter site didn't help them. But one night, after returning home from such a visit, they walked in to find an odd scene in the kitchen. When they came home, there, laying on the center of the kitchen table, was a pile of dead leaves. Uh. As Betty cleared the dried brown foliage from the table, she sifted through the pile and discovered that hidden underneath was a pair of earrings she had worn the night of the encounter. Huh. She neglected to tell Barney, who had no idea about the earrings, and that they had been missing since they had woken up in the car. Uh. In the book, it, it notes... She goes upstairs and hid them in a jewelry box. Mm -hmm. She puts the earrings away and she just starts sobbing. Like she's just mm -hmm. really, really scared because also like all the doors were locked. Nobody had been inside. Yeah. All the windows were shut. And it's like another confirmation. 
Yeah, just something weird happening. You know, something happened and you still don't know what it is. Just dead leaves on the table. Mm -hmm. Like, what the fuck, right? Like, ugh. In March 1962, the Hills sought help from a psychiatrist to treat their increasing anxiety and fear. They both weren't doing very well. They both got, especially Barney, obviously. Yeah. But they were both, you know, Betty was having nightmares. Barney was getting ulcers and just not feeling good. Barney had grown fearful of his driving commute. He developed a phobia of roadblocks and wide open spaces. Well, yeah, I don't fucking blame him. Right, yeah, of course. <laughs> She's already prone to be, like, scared of shit. By this time, Betty's dreams, feeling more and more like nightmares, began to really pick up. Barney also developed a set of unexplained bumps on his genitals oh, no. that his doctor attributed to a psychosomatic reaction triggered by severe stress. Damn. In other words, the two were overwhelmed by mental and emotional distress. Yeah, well, the man's got dick bumps because he's <laughs> so stressed out. <laughs> this whole like story is giving me like Jordan Peele vibes. Like, um, yeah. nope. I want to know why those IBM engineers were so concerned with nitrates. Well, it might be that that's what's luring them or something, you know? And the fact that like they went to each plant and like studied it. Mm -hmm. What? It's weird. And my thought too is maybe those weren't IBM engineers. Yeah. Right? Like those could just be like guys who were like, oh yeah, we're from IBM. Here's two fake names. Men in Black. Government, Men in Black, whatever. What if these aliens, they don't have a lot of nitrates in their world or whatever. And so they had to expand to other places to find more. So that's what they're looking for. And so they see these hot spots and then they find people and they're like, hmm, well, why don't we study these two? You know? Perhaps. So we're going to get into now the hypnosis chapter of this. Fuck yeah. Finally, some science. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, some legitimate science. Let's add some credibility. Yeah. So Betty and Barney went to Dr. Benjamin Simon, a therapist specialized in the controversial hypnotherapy. And it's still controversial, right? Like it's, mm -hmm. it's sketchy in terms of actual recall ability. So Barney, already seeing a separate therapist for his anxiety, was suspicious of Dr. Simon, but grew to find him trustworthy and professional after an introductory consultation. Betty had already known of Dr. Simon from her work at a child guidance clinic. His work was written about in the biographical directory of the American Psychiatric Association, which Betty had access to through the clinic. While Dr. Simon had little interest in unraveling the UFO-centered trauma, he was intrigued by one detail of their experience, and that was amnesia. Mm -hmm. The Hill's collective amnesia presented a sizable gap in their story, and at that time it was believed by Dr. Simon and much of the psychologists studying hypnosis that carefully administered hypnotherapy could lull a patient into a semi-conscious state so that forgotten or repressed memories could become accessible and recalled by the patient. Right, like when you're a baby. And you're in the womb. Yeah, oh my god, I remember the womb so clearly. <laughs> Get me out of here. You have nightmares of the womb. <laughs> There's no windows or doors. I'm just slamming the walls of the womb. <laughs> like seesaw. Let me out of here. It's two things I remember. It's the womb and it's seesaw. <laughs> it's seesaw. Uh, I just wake up from a dead sleep, all sweaty, yelling seesaw. <laughs> so hypnosis is used therapeutically and patients swear by its effectiveness. However, in recent decades, less and less professionals advocate for its use, but it has been proven helpful to treat anxiety. Doctors generally point to the questionable ethics of it, though. We now know it's possible for exploitation to occur as hypnotized people are basically put in a state of high suggestibility. Mm -hmm. And through improper practice, like asking leading questions, 
Hypnotized people can often fall victim to physical or mental manipulation and easily recall false memories. Mm -hmm. Now, I will say Dr. Simon sounds like somebody who was aware of these things, those pitfalls. Mm -hmm. And I guess at the time of all of those practicing hypnosis, he was the most clinical with it and the most structured with it. Mm -hmm. But again, you know, it was the 60s. I can't trust much. But so Dr. Simon agreed to treat Barney and Betty because he believed that amnesia was a central factor in their distress. And that hypnosis could potentially penetrate that amnesia and help the Hills find closure. Because Dr. Simon didn't believe in the UFO stuff. Interesting. The Hills had their first session with Dr. Simon on the morning of January 4th, 1964. It would be the first of three hypnosis treatments. During these appointments, Barney and Betty were taken in Simon's office, separated and placed into trance states, during which the doctor guided them through a series of carefully posed questions which helped them reflect on their supposedly repressed memories from the night in question. These sessions revealed a patchwork account of an alien abduction. Both of their stories strongly resembled Betty's recurring nightmare. But let's start with Barney's story, because I think that's the most, I think it's more interesting because Barney has such emotion attached to his story. And yeah. you can hear the old tapes that Dr. Simon recorded. Like they're, they're available wow. online. The quality is kind of cool. low, but you can hear Barney and Betty's voice as they, as they were in these sessions. And it's, it's a very, very emotionally turbulent. Barney weeps a lot. God, I'm scared. It's all right. You can go right on. Experience it. It will not hurt you now. I got to get my gun. Oh. I got my gun. All right. Oh. All right. That's all. Start. I got my gun. Go to sleep. tortured. Hmm. Barney recounted the story of their drive through the White Mountains and the cigar-shaped aircraft that seemed to follow their car. He described first stepping out of the car and the craft gracefully lowering so close that he could see the row of men looking down through a long window at the front of the craft. Okay, this is where I want to jump to the excerpts that I sent you. Okay. For this one, let's have you be doctor. It's there. You can see it, but it's not going to hurt you. Why doesn't it go away? Look at it. There's a man there. Is is he a captain? What is he? He he looks at me. Just a minute. Let's go back a little now. You said it was there. Did you say a thousand feet away? Oh no. A thousand yards? No, it, it doesn't look that far. It's very big, and it's not that far. And I can see it tilted toward me. What does it look like now? It looks like a big pancake with windows and, and rows of windows and lights. Not lights, just one huge light. Rows of windows? Like a commercial plane? Rows of windows. They're not like a commercial plane because they curve around the side of this this pancake. And I say to myself, oh God, no. I have to shake my head. I've got, I've got, this can't be true. This, is, this isn't here. <sighs> okay, okay, it, it's, it's still there. And I look up and down the road. Can't somebody come? Can't somebody come and tell me this is not there? It can't be, but... You're still safe. You can see it all clearly. It's there. You had no sleep that evening. I pinched my right arm. It's not my right arm. It's my left arm. I'm confused. You're clear now. 
relaxed. It's still there. If I let my binoculars fall and dangle from my neck and start over again, maybe it won't be there. But it is. Why? What do they want? What do they want? One, one, one person looks friendly to me. He's friendly looking. He's looking at me over his right shoulder. And he's smiling. But... Could you see him clearly? Yes, I could. What was his face like? What did it make you think of? It was round. I think of... Uh, I think of a red-headed Irishman. I don't know why. I, I think I know why. Because Irish are usually hostile to Negroes. And when I see a friendly Irish person, I react to him by thinking, I will be friendly. And I think this one that is looking over his shoulder is friendly. You say looking over his shoulder. Was he facing away from you? Yes, he, he was facing a wall. You saw him through this window. You said there was a row of windows. There was a row of windows. A, a huge row of windows. Only divided by struts. Or structures that prevented it from being one solid window. And then, then it would have been one solid window. And the evil face on the leader. He looks like a German Nazi. He's a Nazi? He's a Nazi. Did he have on a uniform? Yes. What kind of uniform? He had a black scarf around his neck, dangling over his left shoulder. He had a black scarf around his neck. How could you see the figure so clearly at that distance? I was looking at them with binoculars. And that is the end of excerpt one. <sighs> That's kind of how the, how the questioning processes go. Mm -hmm. So... Barney described the men looking down from the craft as almost human, with strange slanted eyes. He notes that the eyes were not Asian, but completely different. One of the men looking at Barney spoke to him telepathically, like I said before. He said, stay where you are and keep looking. Don't be afraid, just keep looking. Mm -hmm. It was then that Barney snapped and tore the binoculars from his face and ran to the car. He drives off in a panic with Betty, urging her to keep lookout for the craft. He describes being able to sense the craft near them, above them. These are things that we went through before with the original story. Right. Throughout this part of the hypnosis session, Barney frequently has emotional outbursts, mainly about the strange men's eyes, crying out, those eyes, they're in my brain. Ugh, this poor man. While driving away, they eventually come upon an, an unusual roadblock. And this is where we're going to jump to excerpt two, if you'll read with me. Yes. So it starts with Barney and the doctor. Barney says, I know what's in my mind, and I don't want to say it. Well, you can say it to me. You can say it now. They're men, all with dark jackets, and I don't have any money. I don't have anything. Uh, I don't know. Oh, oh, the eyes are there. Always the eyes are there. And they're telling me I, I don't have to be afraid. Is that an accident down the road? What's the red? The bright red. Bright red. Yes, orange and red. What is that? Where is that? Right down the road. Down the road. And, and I don't have to be afraid, but they won't talk to me. Who won't talk to you? The men. In the vehicle? No. They're standing in the road. There are men standing in the road. Yes. They won't talk to me. Only the eyes are talking to me. I, I, I don't understand that. Oh, the eyes don't have a body. They're just eyes. I, I know. I know, yes. That's what it's got to be. This is when he laughs very flatly, very self-assuredly, very quietly, and he says, I know what it is. It's a wildcat. It's a wildcat up in a tree. No. No, I know what it is. 
It's a Cheshire cat in Alice in Wonderland. Ah, I don't have to be afraid of that. It disappeared too. Only the eyes remained. That's all right. I'm not afraid. You didn't see this. No, I saw it. You saw it. You're still seeing this man? The eyes are telling me, don't be afraid. afraid. That's the leader's eyes? I don't even see the leader. The other eyes. All all I see are these eyes. The eyes now. I'm not... I'm not even afraid that they're not connected to a body. They're just there. They're just up close to me, pressing against my eyes. That's funny. I'm not afraid. Now, what's happened to this vehicle? I don't see any vehicle. It's gone? It's there. No, it's not gone. But I don't see it. I'm just there. And where are you? Are you in the car? No. I'm just suspended. I'm just floating about. Oh, how funny. Floating about. Just floating. I... I want to get back to the car. I'm just floating about. You're really floating about, or is that just the way you feel? That's just the way I feel. You're still outside the car? No. You're in the car. I'm not in the car. I'm not near the car. I'm not in the woods. I'm not on the road. Well, where are these men? I don't know. (sighs) That's the end of Expert (sighs) 2. So you can see him halfway through, and this is probably an effect of the hypnosis doing weird shit because he's in this weird state. Either he's convincing himself that he's seen a Cheshire cat, or I'm thinking in all these stories you hear about abductions and alien encounters, they try to relax you. Mm-hmm. They have this ability to make you calm and to make you feel at peace. Mm-hmm. If you look at it through that lens, the aliens are maybe like changing the way he's observing them to make him more comfortable. Mm, Okay. So he's going like, I'm familiar with this. This is like an Alice in Wonderland. I'm okay. Right. That's what I was thinking is they keep telling him like, it's okay. Don't be scared. Don't be afraid, whatever. Yeah. And so like his brain is still trying to make sense of things. And the closest thing you can think of is like the Cheshire cat. He doesn't associate that with a scary memory. So then therefore it's not scary anymore. Right. Shortly after this, Barney's first session with Dr. Simon ended, and his second session was on February 29th, 1964. Before being placed in a trance, Barney mentioned to the doctor that he believed he had begun to remember parts of their session, namely the image of the frightening eyes. This was unusual because at the end of each session, Dr. Simon administered both Barney and Betty with a hypnotic amnesia, saying, for example, quote, We'll stop there. You will be calm and relaxed. You will forget everything that we have had in this period until I ask you to recall it again, unquote. That's how he ended every session, just about. Mm -hmm. By making them forget the details of their session, it also prevented the Hills from later sharing their stories and influencing each other's claims because he didn't want any cross-contamination. He didn't want them telling each other's shit so they start making stuff up. Yeah, that's a good idea. It was clear to the doctor that the eyes were immensely traumatic and triggering for Barney, who was already an especially anxious and emotional patient. Over the last two sessions, Barney's full experience came into view, with the doctor finally succeeding in guiding him through the fractured pieces of his forgotten memory, navigating numerous emotional landmines and non-linear recollections. Barney's story picked back up with the strange short men at the roadblock and how they went about forcing the couple out of their car. Barney then recalls two of the men grabbing hold of his arms and brutishly escorting him through a forest clearing. He describes seeing the leader's eyes flash in his head, which was accompanied by a kind of telepathic message urging him to close his eyes. Barney would keep his eyes closed for a majority of the remainder of the abduction encounter. So he really, when he fully remembers what happens to him inside the ship, most of it, his eyes are closed. So he only remembers sensations. 
Barney, along with Betty, who was being similarly dragged in front of him, could feel his shoes dragging along the rocks and dirt of the forest floor, which would account for the scuffs. Then he felt them dragging along a smooth surface, which he took to be the floor of the aircraft. Soon, Barney could sense that he had been dragged into an isolated room inside the craft. In this room, he felt the men usher him onto a table-like platform, like a hospital examination table, but smaller. Mm -hmm. Then he was roughly undressed. He later said, quote, I felt my shoes being removed and my pants being opened, and I can hear this humming-like sound they were seeming to make. Immediately after this, he felt an object inserted into his rectum quickly. Ew. Then removed shortly after, all of it surprisingly painless. Hmm. Probed, like the classic alien probe. It kind of starts here. This is like the first. What's cool about the story is it's it's like the genesis for most generic abduction details. Like none of this existed before the story. There was no there was no butthole probe. <laughs> there was no <laughs> abduction taken from my car, examined, all that kind of stuff. This all started here. It's wild. Yeah. So during this, he could hear the words of the leader in his head, encouraging him to keep his eyes closed. Barney was then turned over and felt hands touching his back. They seemed to be counting his vertebrae. During this examination, he also felt a cup-like device placed over his genitals. Oh my God. Barney wasn't sure why, but he suspected the device had collected a sperm sample. Barney had not experienced an orgasm. In fact, the sensation was especially unpleasant. Ew, okay. Yeah, while on his back, Barney's mouth was opened and two fingers poked around inside his mouth. All the while, he heard men speaking a foreign, mumbled language. Barney's memory of the examination ends there. After that, he had a foggy recollection of being escorted back to the car with Betty and watching the aircraft lift off and disappear. I can't remember. You'll hear it in Betty's encounter, but one thing they do that's notable is when they're examining his mouth, they take... Barney has false teeth. He's got dentures because of an accident in the military. The grenade went off and it fucked up his teeth. Mm -hmm. So he wore dentures and the aliens took out his dentures and like were really concerned that they just removed his teeth. <laughs> like they didn't know what dentures were. Yeah. And that comes up later. But his whole experience was he felt judgment from them. He felt very afraid of these people. And also like the cup around the genitals kind of explains potentially the bumps he had too. Mm, yeah. Bumps he had in his junk. Yeah, that's a fair point. I didn't think about that. Also, I, I thought I had, I had written it down or I'd recorded it in the excerpts, but there was a really impactful part of Barney's hypnosis therapy sessions where... He was like having a panic attack and he was describing himself as a rabbit. He felt like he was a rabbit. And he talked about how he explained like, oh, when I was a kid, me and my cousin trapped a rabbit uh, with a box. We tricked it. He felt guilty about it his whole life, about trapping this rabbit. Oh, like in that moment, I am the rabbit. I've been trapped. I felt that was a very like emotionally significant thing. Like Barney feels like a trapped animal. This poor man. This dude is fucked up from this. So, which is interesting why in that moment when they're, when they're driving away, all Barney can say is they're going to capture us. They're going to capture us. Mm -hmm. There's no inclination. Nothing happens to him that tells him they're going to get him, but he just feels they're going to capture us. Right. And that's like a terrifying feeling, I'm sure. Yeah. So going on to Betty's side of this, as Dr. Simon recorded Betty's sessions, it was clear that she was capable of accessing her lost memories with clearer detail. And while Betty did cry and become emotional during more intense moments of her abduction retelling, she seemed way less traumatized than Barney overall. When reading Betty's hypnosis transcripts, her supposed memory of the abduction closely follows the events in her reoccurring nightmare. Betty's hypnosis sessions revealed an early memory she'd had of that odd electronic beeping they had heard coming from the back of the car before blacking out. She described a hazy moment sometime after the initial beeping. After they had supposedly become unconscious, she remembered Barney driving away and making a sudden turn that didn't make sense to her. 
a risky detour onto a narrow dirt road that snaked through a dark forest. According to Betty's hypnosis session, it was on that dirt road that they had came upon the roadblock comprised of short men, as many as 11 of them, according to her. When Barney stopped the car, the group of men broke up with six of them approaching the car. Three men came to Barney's side of the car and three came to Betty's side. They opened the doors and pulled them out. The little men guided them down a long and winding path to their craft. As Betty was pulled, she called out to Barney, who was being hoisted by the arms and dragged. Barney did not respond to his wife's shouting and appeared to be in a twilight state. This also kind of backs up Barney's thing of like, he was being dragged and he was keeping his eyes closed, you know? So like he's mm-hmm. just locked up pretty much. The craft had a ramp structure leading into an entranceway, like a bulkhead. She was escorted into the craft where they brought her into a separated room and she watched Barney pass by, carried off into another room. Mm-hmm. Betty's description of her room matched Barney's with a small examination table that was around four feet long, designated for something smaller than a human. Unlike Barney, Betty's eyes were open for the duration of the exam, so she was capable of providing greater detail. In the room, Betty is left alone with the man both Barney and her distinguish as the leader. In their hypnotic regression sessions, a clear captain figure, the man whose eyes haunted Barney, you know, the Nazi guy. Betty notes that the leader speaks perfect English, but with a slight accent she's never heard before, faintly Eastern European. Hmm. Her and the leader are joined by another man who speaks in heavily broken English. That's the examiner from her dream. Right. And he begins to perform a series of peculiar exams on Betty's body. First, the examiner sits her down on a stool and brings a machine she didn't recognize, like a microscope contraption with a huge lens. The examiner pulls up the sleeve on her dress and studies her arm under the microscope. The leader also looks through the microscope and converses with the examiner in a foreign language. Then the examiner used a bladed tool to scrape a skin sample from her arm and secured it in a cellophane wrap. The examiner then uses a tool to examine her eyes, ears, nose, teeth, mouth. Then he takes a swab of her ear and pulls some strands of hair from her head and hands the sample to the leader. Next, her shoes were removed and the examiner inspects her feet, then her hands, and collects her fingernail clippings. So this is very similar to the dream. We're just going to go through it again. Yeah. For the final portion of the exam, the examiner attempts to remove Betty's dress, but cannot understand how to work a zipper. After the dress tears slightly, Betty shows him how to use the zipper, and her dress is removed. After examining her spinal column, the examiner retrieves what Betty describes as a syringe with a massive needle roughly six inches long. Holy Christ. The examiner told Betty that he was administering a, quote, pregnancy test. At the time, this would not have resembled any known pregnancy test, and commercial pregnancy tests, as we know them today, would not exist for another 10 years. Interesting. Yeah, right? The examiner inserted the needle into her belly button, which caused Betty immense pain. She likened it to being stabbed with a knife. Wow. Noticing how much pain she was in, the leader came over to Betty and waved a hand in front of her face, which made the pain vanish immediately. The examination then apparently ended, and the examiner left the room. Along with the leader, Betty's curiosity got the best of her, and she began asking the leader various questions about the ship and its people. Mm-hmm. Then Betty noticed a large book on a cabinet nearby, and the leader encouraged her to look around the room, and Betty retrieved that book. The text inside was a foreign alphabet, and Betty said, quote, It went up and down. It was different. It had short lines, and some were very thin. Some were medium, and some were heavy. They had some dots, and they had straight lines and curved lines, unquote. The leader asked if she could read the writing inside. Betty answered no and explained that she wanted to take the book with her as proof of what had happened, but the leader would not allow it. Returning to her line of questioning, Betty finally asked the million-dollar question of where he and his crew was from. 
The leader asked Betty if she knew much about the universe. She replied that she didn't. The leader moved to the compartment on the wall and produced a map, but no ordinary map. Like we just said in the dream, Betty described that looking at the map was like looking out of a window. It was maybe three feet by two feet in size and resembled what we today might call a hologram. Okay. Betty said, quote, it was so realistic that it was almost like looking at the sky. Some of the objects even seemed to be moving slowly. On the map, a series of dots of varying size could be seen. Some dots were connected by lines which the leader said were trade routes. And other lines were like exploratory excursions, like little routes for uh, discovery. This was soon interrupted by the examiner rushing into the room, muttering frantically. He began examining Betty's teeth again. And the leader translated to Betty, explaining that Barney's teeth had apparently come out. <laughs> and she explained that Barney wore dentures. And they were very confused by this. And she explained, um, like, oh, you know, sometimes when people get older, their teeth fall out and they need replacement teeth. And they were really baffled by the concept of getting older. Huh. So after this, they sort of wrap up their little exam. And according to Betty, they are escorted out of the aircraft and placed back in their car. And the leader had told her, like, hey, you should really, you should, you should wait and watch us fly off before you leave. So they sit in the car, they watch the thing ascend, vanish into the night. And then they're in the car driving off. And then if you connect the dots, that's when they hear the beeping. And then that's when they would wake up outside of Concord. Mm -hmm. And so that's where the story ends, basically. Hmm. Let me look this up really quick. I think Barney doesn't live much longer. Yeah, because you said, when did this happen? Did you say? Uh, 1961. And then The Interrupted Journey was written in 1966. Mm -hmm. um, but even now, like the place where they saw the craft there's like a historical marker there on the road and the new hampshire division of historical resources marked that site they call it like a historical site interesting yeah and um let me see when barney dies so they were like 20 at the time they, they would be about 80 like mid 80s well no they were they were in their 30s barney died in 1969 so he didn't oh. make it past the decade so he was barney and he was 46 and then Betty died in 2004. Mm. She was 85. But yeah, so in terms of like criticism of this, I know people talk about how Betty towards the end of her life got kind of like off her rocker with everything. And there's stories of how like she would show up to UFO conventions and she was just sort of talk aimlessly mm. and like eventually get booted off stage. There's I know there's people who tracked the stars that she describes in the map and they believe that it's like a certain constellation in the sky. Mm. People have tried to back it up. But for the most part, it is what it is. There's people who believe it, people who don't. But what I like about it is that it's the first real American alien abduction, and it kind of sets all these tropes in action. So to me, that makes it a little bit more believable. Yeah. Whereas other abductions, they have these same story beats, but that's because they already existed, you know? Right. After the story, these story beats appear in TV and movies and sci-fi books because they become tropes. They become borrowed things. If they did make this up, they were the first to come up with all this shit, which is cool. And I really believe, I especially believe Barney because he was so like tortured by it. Yeah. And so uncomfortable with it. Like clearly not, had no interest in making any money off of this. And like didn't really want to talk about it even. No, he wanted nothing to do with it. Yeah. And still gave like sensitive details, like probing. Like, yeah. I imagine like no man at that time wants to admit that anything was in your butt. <laughs> you absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Right. I feel like a little inclined to believe them, whether their recounting is literal or not. I, like, I don't know, but they believe the experience was real. 
that's for sure. Okay, so here's I'm just ripping this from the Wikipedia page for the Barney and Betty Hill incident. Mm -hmm. 1968, Marjorie Fish of Oak Harbor, Ohio, read Fuller's book, Interrupted Journey. Fish was a school teacher and amateur astronomer. Intrigued by the star map, Fish wondered if it might be deciphered to determine which star system the UFO came from. Assuming that one of the 15 stars on the map must represent Earth's sun, Fish constructed a three-dimensional model of nearby sun-like stars using thread and beads, basing stellar distances on those published in 1969 Glee's Star Catalog. Studying thousands of vantage points over several years, the only one that seemed to match the hill map was the viewpoint of the double star system of Zeta Reticuli which is about 39 mm -hmm. light years from Earth. And that comes up a ton in uh, UFO stories. I wonder if it's because of her, like because she tracked it to that. It could have been. Bob Lazar, that's what it is. Bob Lazar talks about when he was working for the government, allegedly, he talks about how the, what, the information they did give him was that the Kraft mm -hmm. government had allegedly found in, near Area 51 where they were trying to like rebuild it and like deconstruct it. Yeah. They talked about how they believed it came from the Zeta Reticuli star system. And that's all the information mm -hmm. they gave him. Yeah, and it was like ultra silent too. Yeah, no seams on it, no, no nothing. It's interesting because they like Betty and Barney Hill also described it as being like soundless. Yeah. It's all coming together. It's all coming together. It'll make sense. Really interesting though, really, uh, really disturbing. You said 39 million light years? No, 39 light years from Earth. So like theoretically we could take pictures of it and see what's going on over there and it would only be like 40 years off, right? Is that how that works? I have no idea. I've no, I got no brain for that. <laughs> that's all. That's all, folks. That's all I got for this story. That's that is the abduction, Betty and Barney Hill. So, if you're listening to this, what you should be doing is developing a telescope that can see that far away without the influence of the government to taint our viewings. First of all, build this impossible piece of technology. That shouldn't take very long. <laughs> then hide it from the government. But contact us and tell me what you find yes write us a letter <laughs> write us a letter so where i live they just developed like a new astronomy place what do you call it? a planetarium and there's this huge like telescope too and they let the public use it like once a week or something you just like stop by and you can like look at the stars or whatever so what if i figure out where the system is map <laughs> yeah. it out i go yeah. during public hours I find it, and I see an ancient civilization. What do I do? Only you could do this. They haven't thought of this before. Yeah. Yeah. Only me. Only you. Well, I'm talking about the public. I'm sure the government has. They're not going to tell us. They're not going to tell us. What no, they they're see. not going to tell. Why would they or tell what us? what if they just, like, painted a picture that looks very similar to space, put it up in the sky, <laughs> so whoever tries to look at it can't see the aliens? Okay, are you implying that it's, like, a similar con to like when the road runner would put like a fake yeah the fake tunnel on a canyon wall for the coyote <laughs> exactly. to run into <laughs> interesting <laughs> i hate when the government does that god yeah they always think of everything they always think of everything they painted the sky i fucking hate that dude yeah it's so fucking annoying let me see the aliens let me see the why are you hiding it <laughs> you imagine the aliens like contacted the u.s government or like world government because yeah the world doesn't revolve around the U.S. Um, hard, to, hard to imagine, but true. Right. <laughs> like, hey, guys, 
Y'all got so many peeping toms just glaring at us and it's really putting us off. Yeah. Can you like do something about this? Like it's really annoying. You need to get this taken care of. One guy was like watching the Roadrunner and he's like, oh yeah. Oh yeah. I got just the thing. <laughs> We're going to need a lot of black paint. <laughs> but you should go to that planetarium and just look at the shit. That's super cool. I will. I'll look for aliens. Yeah. All right. Should I close out? Oh, wait. Good vibes. Good vibes. What's your good vibe? My good vibe is that today is the premiere of my sketch show, my very first sketch <gasps> show. Congratulations. I wish I could be there. Thank you. Will it be recorded? Yeah, I think one of my friends is going to record it. Okay, please, once you have that recording, please send it to me. Okay, it's going to be crazy. I actually have a sketch. I have a runner sketch on alien abductions, so it'll be fitting. Maybe I'll pop it on our Patreon or something. Hell yeah, absolutely. <laughs> That'd be so cool. It'll be fun. So that's my good vibe. How about you? My good vibe is the promise... That awaits us in the stars. No, oh, of course. Somewhere out there, there is a benevolent race of aliens that will put a suction cup in my penis. <laughs> Maybe weird bumps. And leave weird bumps. But that's the price you gotta pay for alien technology for my junk. <laughs> Braille on your penis. Just an ultra space-time flashlight. Who knows? Sign me up. I'm more open-minded than some people, Barney. <laughs> I totally fucked up that opportunity. If you're listening to this and you also would like suction cups on your penis, um, <laughs> feel free to email us about it at according to an idiot at gmail.com and <laughs> let us know your general thoughts on this episode, the incident, or just like whatever is going on. If you want to tell us something, uh, yeah. that's the good time to do it. You can also stay up to date on when we post episodes, what they're about, and other general news by following our Instagram or Facebook at According to an Idiot or our Twitter at Idiots Accord. If you are craving more content, if you feel like this just isn't enough, well, <laughs> good for you. We got a Patreon. Yeah, baby. So you get early access to episodes, ad-free listening. We also are doing an exclusive series on there. You can also vote for topics, give suggestions, and just like hang out with cool people on there and if you really like us you can help get our show out there by rating us on itunes and spotify and help spread the word we also had a really nice review the other day i'm gonna read it oh, actually because i'm thinking about it all right so it is from number one best fan and they said i still listen to you people daily when is your next episode i'm hooked this is my third time listening to the whole series oh damn that's a rave review thank you so much we are putting out episodes every other week, at least once a month yeah. at this point. We're trying to increase it. I mean, lately we have honestly probably have more mini. The way we're, we're doing this, it's probably going to be more feasible to put out more mini-sodes. Mm -hmm. We can pump those out really quick. So you might start seeing like more mini-sodes in a row. But that's just so we can get more stuff out to you quicker because these full episodes do require a lot more research, and which also means a little bit more editing too. But yes. yeah, I, I'm... Yeah. We're both, I think, of the mind that, you know, it's time to start really start pumping stuff out. Nice. So that's cool. So we got that going for us. Oh, yeah. If you're listening to this episode and you're like, hey, guys, weren't you going to talk about a cult thing? Yes, we are. We're researching it and it is very complex. Yeah, yeah. We, <laughs> so we, we, did a, like... we did a Patreon poll where one of the options was the People's Church. Yeah, the People's Temple. It's the People's Temple, the Jim Jones, Jonestown stuff. We will be covering that eventually. It's just going to require like a different kind of research we aren't used to. So it's it's in the pipeline. Mm -hmm. It just, you might not see it for a while. It'll likely be a two-parter as yeah. well, at least, because um, yeah. there's a lot of information there. 
I definitely I gotta read some books too. Yeah, we got, we're reading. <laughs> we're reading there. It's not just some Sasquatch shit that we can just put together. It's like actual. <laughs> Do it justice. Yeah. Anyways, thank you all. Thanks everyone for listening. We love you. Watch the skies, and I will see you in time. <laughs> Bye.